You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. If you're able to, please remain standing as we do read our text this morning. It is God's word to God's people. Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. As I had mentioned on the post on Realm, uh, there is a particular nature of this uh, set of verses here that is uh, a mature in content, so I would like to warn some of the parents who do have young children who this may be something that would uh, be, let's just say, concerning at face value, but uh, we do have the family room that's available if you'd like to take your kids there. Uh, but certainly you as the parents can um, best know how to deal with this passage in light of your children. So, Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse 1 through verse 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, The daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. This is God's word. You may be seated. In preparing for this sermon... In reading this passage, I was continually asking myself, why does Matthew include this story in his gospel? Why does he place it here? Who is this Herod and what is up with him? This story doesn't sound very gospel-like. It doesn't have Jesus speaking to the crowds, performing miracles. But rather, in this vignette, this very short story, Jesus is in the background. While the focus is on Herod and John, with Herodias and her daughter as supporting characters. And in good storytelling format, it does have conflict, some palace intrigue, and a resolution, albeit a very gruesome one. But as to our question, 
Why does Matthew tell us this story, and why does he place it at this point in his gospel? Matthew, as we have been finding out, is very methodical in arranging his gospel into specific portions for specific reasons. And he does so so that his readers, that's us, can come to a conclusion about who Jesus is. If anything, that is what Matthew is challenging us throughout his gospel. Who is Jesus? And we've seen over the last few weeks in chapter 13 that Matthew He's assembled a block of parables where Jesus himself taught truths about this kingdom, this kingdom of heaven, and he taught, among many things, that there are two kinds of people, the evil and the righteous, and they will be separated at the end of the age. And in the end, Matthew is convincing us to conclude that this Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king of this kingdom. And Matthew tells us also that not all will receive this truth. In fact, many will reject him. And that's how chapter 13 ends, if you remember, where the prophet himself rejected by his own. And he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he, Jesus, did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. As we continue on in Matthew's gospel, despite the rejection of Jesus, we will begin to see that his kingdom is going to be inaugurated, not with a military overthrow of the visible enemies like Rome or the power-hungry religious leaders, but inaugurated in a way that is unexpected. It's antithetical to the way of this world, and it will be done in the gospel way a way that requires loss of the things in this world in order to gain life in another. So Matthew describes our two main characters in a way that you could title this short story as a tale of two fates or a study in contrasts, the life of Herod and the death of John the Baptist. Or as one commentator quipped, better to lose your head than to lose your mind. But as we slow down and take a closer look at this story, we will see the sobriety, the seriousness of what it means to reject Jesus and the cost of following him. Now about this tale of two fates, this study in contrasts, You could not have more of a display of two people intertwined in their fates, but with two divergent paths. Amazingly, John the Baptist and Herod, they had much in common. First, both were in their respective positions and offices, Herod a ruler of the Jews and John a prophet. They held these by virtue of their birth. Herod, one of four sons of Herod the Great, he was the ruler of all of Judea at the time of Christ's birth. The Herod in this passage is Herod Antipas, and he was his son, and he was given authority by his father over the part of Israel where Jesus had ministered. That's the part of Galilee. Now, his power was not absolute because it was an arrangement through the authority and the good graces of Rome. 
Rome was the empire, and they were in charge. John, as we know from Luke's gospel, was given confirmation of his office while he was in the womb. You guys remember, he was moving about excitedly as Mary came to visit his mother, Elizabeth. But he was called to be a prophet through Isaiah, some seven centuries earlier. And Matthew introduces him in chapter 3 of his gospel, where John was the fulfillment of the prophet. He was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the paths of the Lord. Secondly, these two, Herod and John, they both responded to the truth and they acted according to their respective responses. Herod, when confronted with the truth, he was often conflicted. He was either rash in his response, and in many cases he was cunning in trying to shift blame or work things to his benefit. In fact, when Jesus was warned to get away from Jerusalem because Herod wanted to kill him, Jesus described him as a fox, someone who was cunning, and couldn't be trusted. No matter what, Herod's ultimate guiding light was not the truth, but his pride. He had this intense desire for self-satisfaction and for self-preservation and pleasure, especially at the cost of others. John, on the other hand, he'd done his best to not only live by the truth, but to promote it through his preaching and his exhortations, he understood the consequences of the truth. And that's what motivated him. That's what motivated John to speak truth regardless of his audience and what that meant for him. And thirdly, they both lived in fear. But it was who they feared that made all the difference in the world. So with this background... I want us to take a closer look at our passage this morning. Verses 1 and 2 set up the divergent path that Herod takes when confronted with the question of who Jesus is. And at this point, Herod's conscience is fully absorbed with guilt. And his rationale for everything is either the result of his guilt or his self-preservation, or in many cases, both. Look at verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. It's incredible how Matthew opens this passage up. While this revelation of Jesus, no matter how limited, it's specific to Herod. And it reveals his culpability because he has heard. Herod is now accountable. But it's also something all of us are responsible for. The fame of Jesus through the prompting of the Holy Spirit as revealed in his living word is something we all need to answer to. At this time, in this life, and also in the next. Now here's something I want us to take a look at and note, make note of. Who is Herod responding to in the second verse? And this is one of two places where Matthew, he doesn't hold back in this description of Herod. Some commentators note how his account here is shorter and to the point than, say, Mark's gospel. But Matthew does save his less than flattering description of Herod, not out of spite, 
but out of accuracy and perhaps a bit of sarcasm to make his point. So who is Herod speaking to? With Herod as ruler of the Jews in this particular region of Israel, he's actually, as I mentioned, a puppet prince propped up by Rome. Herod's hold on power is at once tenuous, but he does have some means and resources at his disposal, including people. And in this case, these people are known as the Herodians, who serve as conduits to the power that Herod held as an unofficial and official representative of Rome, but again, also as a ruler of the Jews. And they were placed by him in his court for his benefit. In other words, they were his yes-men. And although they were, quote, nobles, leading men of Galilee, and military commanders, as Mark describes, they were, in effect, servants. Servants to the whims and the wishes of Herod. And so Matthew continues. And he said to his servants, now picture this, Herod is ridden with guilt. And you could see, perhaps, with his background, he's not saying this as a declaration of confidence. He's saying this out of paranoia. Here he says, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And here's the irony in this opening. You remember, John the Baptist, in obeying Christ by baptizing him, he heard a direct revelation from the Father in heaven. You remember the Father in heaven speaks from the sky and he says, this is my beloved son, Jesus, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And John was faithful. He was faithful to listen to Jesus and obey him by preaching faithfully and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So faithful was his message that we have this record of his ministry. Feel free to turn to Luke chapter 3 if you'd like to follow along. But Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 10. In preaching a life bearing fruits in keeping with repentance, John says that the crowds asked John, what then shall we do? Verse 11, and he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. And we know that John denied that he was the Christ. In verse 16, he says, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenched. 
unquenchable fire. Sounds a lot like Sermon on the Mount and some of the parables we just studied. And I bring this up because this was the same message that Herod heard. This was the same message that Herod heard along with his servants and his yes-men, his political supporters, the Herodians. And yet, Herod still believed that John was Jesus. Or perhaps more accurately, Jesus was the incarnation of John. Very superstitious. And this clearly showed that Herod was living in fear. He was living with guilt. And he had some anger. And he was perplexed. And he was paranoid that John was coming for him. So why these feelings towards John? Well, let's see what the text has to say. Look at verse 3. This is sort of a, a flashback. So after him saying out of paranoia that this was Jesus and his fame, this was John the Baptist, he's actually saying, now for Herod, the reason why, for Herod had seized John, verse 3 of Matthew 14, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And John was simply and uncompromisingly upholding God's law. He was standing up. This is what John was doing. Out of all this political pressure and power, he was standing up for the sanctity of marriage and a sexual ethic that not only protects the married couple, but also the community in which they lived from physical, mental, psychological, and emotional harm of sexual immorality and its consequences. Is this not a word for today? John knew this well, and as one dedicated to preaching God's law, no doubt he quoted Leviticus 18 and 20, which was plain and clear. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod, although not a Jew by ethnicity, he understood the culture enough to know this. But even if he didn't, he no doubt heard it directly from John the Baptist, and he heard it often. The phrase had been saying in verse 4, one commentator notes that this was ongoing from John and called it a continuing campaign. Mark writes that Herodias, Herod's wife, quote, had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. And Herod, as well, wanted to see him put to death, as we see in verse 5. Verse 5, and though he wanted him to be put to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. This is the conflict that Herod had. He wanted to please his wife. He wanted to rid the voice that was haunting him. And yet he knew upsetting the Jewish population meant risking turmoil and incite a possible riot, which would then incur the wrath of Rome. And then that could possibly lead to his losing power and authority as Tetrarch of Galilee. So his decision was driven again 
by both fear and self-preservation. Now, you may be thinking, okay, well, fear and self-preservation, those are basic drives and motivators, not only to survive, but in some cases thrive. They're not necessarily bad in and of themselves. But as we've seen, Herod's had motiva- Herod had motivations that were driven more by his pride and his selfishness, even if it meant costing another's life. And all it took was an opportunity. But this was set up not by Herod, but by Herodias, his wife. And it involved her daughter. Look at verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Again, Matthew is pretty straightforward, and he sticks with the cold, hard facts, as it were. But near to the time that Matthew's gospel was written and circulated in the early church, many would have understood the scandal that was taking place in the event described in verse 6. A bit of historical background to help us better understand this salacious act and the desires stoked by Herod's, in Herod's sight. New Testament scholars are very helpful here. First, Birthdays were not typically celebrated in Jewish culture. And if they were, it was only for the people who have died as a way to honor them. But birthdays did happen in Hellenistic circles. And that's Greek-influenced Jews who were at times at odds with either Jews, Jews in general, like the Pharisees. But as you can see, anybody other than a Jew is a Gentile. And we know that there was built-in conflict there. But birthdays did happen, and it would, be, it would have been the thing to do, especially if you were someone of high stature, like Herod. And it's also a way to show off, show off to increase popularity as well as to gain political clout because you would have had many guests of influence. Nothing is new under the sun, right? Additionally, as noted in Mark's gospel, the birthday bash was a male-only affair, complete with finest, the finest food and drink. And as you can imagine, drunkenness would have been common and pleasure would have been sought after. Some liken this event to more of a crude bachelor party. Regarding Herodias' daughter dancing, that was another thing. R.T. France, a scholar, says, there was something repulsive about a princess dancing before a crowd of drunken men. Because this wasn't ballroom dancing. And given Herod's appetite for lust and pleasure, you guys remember, he took his brother Philip's wife foregoing all decency and custom and morality. He was driven by sensuality. O'Donnell, another teacher, describes the scene this way, quote, All the leading men are gathered prestigious and the powerful. And when it is time for entertainment, which usually meant slave girls would come in and dance, instead Herodias' daughter dances. This, quote, pleased Herod, a very tame way of saying he had his lust. Like any man in that state of idiocy driven by sexual fantasy, 
he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And if you think about it, it's not only that he was seduced, but he was also being a braggadocio. His offer was a way of boasting. What do I mean? Well, Mark's gospel added certain detail. He says here that he offers up to half his kingdom. And the irony was that he didn't even have a kingdom to give. You remember, he was a tetrarch, at most a ruling prince, and was given his land and authority by others. He was a steward, not a true king. And here's where it gets even worse. Again, Mark's gospel reveals that Herodias' daughter came in from another room, that this was all a setup from Herodias herself. So when offered to be given anything from Herod himself, she left the room, consulted with her mother, and came back with a request that stunned a drunk Herod. Look at verse 8. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Recall Matthew's accurate recording of this event. Offering a slight as to who Herod was and his perceived sense of entitlement and authority when he called the noblemen his servants. Remember that. Well, it was only at this point that Matthew calls Herod a king, exposing his inability to overcome the rash decision and actions unbecoming of a true king. Verse 9. And the king was sorry. Instead of humbling himself and admitting his foolish and shameful offer in his pride, in, in saving face and his reputation, he's worried about what others will think of him. And he makes a decision which will haunt him. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. Given Herod's, Herod's resources, it's interesting to see that in his palace was the prison, the actual prison that held John the Baptist and probably anyone else he deemed a threat to his kingdom. It's also sad to note that in his pride, he ordered John's execution, which was illegal given that there really wasn't any trial whatsoever. This was flat out murder. The next verse gives us a gross but a clear picture of the depth of depravity. And church, this is where, where sin takes us if left unchecked. Verse 11 and his head. Think about that for a moment. It's a human being, a human being's head. It's not a prop. This is John the Baptist's head. It was brought on a platter. The horror of this request is sickening. The head of John the Baptist was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Herodias and her daughter were all in. And Herod, in his fear, in his lust, in his pride, 
succumb to this evil plot. And these three were, in a sense, an anti-type to the kingdom ethic. Ironic, seeing as they had their own kingdom. Bruner, New Testament um, commentator, he writes this, quote, Everything Jesus commands against in his Sermon on the Mount, disrespect for the law, bitter anger, lust, adultery, and oaths, revenge and hatred, all of these combined and contributed to the death of John the Baptist at the palace. And to complete this transition in verse 12, and disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So there you have it. A not-so-gospel-like story in the middle of Matthew's gospel. The question we opened up with, why does Matthew include this story in his gospel? Well, I offer this. Again, New Testament scholar O'Donnell. Quote, what is the purpose of all this? The purpose is not merely to prove that these three villains in this text are indeed villainous. Rather, the primary purpose in identifying such abominations is to serve as a mirror to our souls. That is, when we look into this wicked man in our text, in what ways do we see ourselves? I submit, it is good practice to see ourselves in the text and to ask the Spirit, is there sin that you are warning me about? Is there something in this text that is reminding me to lay aside every weight in the sin which so clings so closely? In fact, God's word speaks about people like Herod and John for a specific purpose, for us. Romans 15, 4. Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says, Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Well, that's great. But how does Herod's self-absorption and sin in John's beheading give me hope? How does looking into this wicked man to see how I'm like him give me hope? It's a good question. First, fallen creatures. That's Herod and John. That's you and me. We cannot redeem ourselves. We who by nature are children of wrath cannot save ourselves. Given over to ourselves, our autonomy in other words, if we were to have it our way, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we would all end up like Herod or a virgin like him. We may not be in bondage to sexual sin specifically, but we are, apart from Christ, slaves to sin. And that's why it's utterly crucial. Church, it is utterly crucial to know who Jesus is not by what other people say about him, but what he says about himself. His revelation of who he is in his living word to us, church, it's a grace. 
It is a grace. That is why we stand when we read the word of God. It is God's revelation to us, and that is in and of itself a grace. Thank God. Thanks be to God. Because Herod feared what others say and think about him, he feared less about God and what God says about himself and his son. He inaccurately identifies Jesus as a man whom he killed, brought to this conclusion by a guilty heart, a heart, listen to this, that refused to be comforted by the prospect of forgiveness offered in the preaching of repentance by John the Baptist. He heard he is accountable. And instead, he focused on his self-exaltation. Brian Chapel, in saying how vital it is in accurately identifying who Jesus is and who we are, because in doing so, it opens the door for our very salvation. When we understand Jesus not only as the Savior, but my Savior, because he bore my sins and the punishment for my sin, he writes this, identifying the gracious means that is Jesus and his words, his word, identifying the gracious means that God provides for us to deal with a human brokenness that deprives us, and here's the blessing, of the full experience and expression of his glory. That's what God wants for us. That's what God wants for us. Once, listen, once we repent and believe in Jesus, we are united by faith in him, and we begin to grow in that full experience and expression of his glory. And that's what it means to be sanctified. That's what it means to be transformed into the image of the Son of God. That is our destiny, and that's the power of the gospel. On the other hand, Herod, he was interested in imaging himself. Imaging himself. How many means do we have to image ourselves? He was interested in imaging himself and only himself. Historians have documented statues built of himself all throughout his palace and his palace grounds. And as we've read in this little short story, Herod was all about preserving his reputation and his own ability to have pleasure on demand. Although we don't see Jesus speaking in this story, Jesus has spoken. When Herod is reacting to John's words, he is reacting to Jesus' words because a prophet speaks the word of God. So as he, Herod, rejects John, he is rejecting Jesus. We, like Herod, do have times of lust, of having an intense desire for something that's not always sexually explicit, but an intense desire for something that is not ours. Sexual sin, for many of us, is trying to satisfy, certainly, our flesh, but there's something deeper that we are pining for. For some, it's power or entitlement. 
Perhaps it's a longing for comfort and security made deceptively real by offering immediate satisfaction. Sin is pleasurable, but for a moment. We, like Herod, do live in fear of rejection, of not being accepted, loved, and recognized. And as a result, pride gets the better of us. And there are times when this manifests in the sin of coveting things and people and relationships. And really, that's us being discontent with what we already have been blessed with. And at the heart of this is not trusting that God is who he says he is. That he is a loving father who has given his only son for you. Like Herod, there is a sense of pride and control we manifest when we don't get the credit we think we deserve. You recall the older brother in the story of the prodigal son? You guys remember Luke chapter 15? Who complains when his sinning brother returns to be accepted in full by his father when all along this older brother was doing the right thing but with a heart of wanting recognition and credit for doing so instead of accepting the love of his father. The father says, son, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. Like Herod, we think we can manage our sin and at the same time keep God Or in Herod's case, God's spokesman, John the Baptist, at a safe distance so that we could live and enjoy our life without giving up the short-lived pleasures of this world which eventually lead to death and destruction. And we, like John, when we have been filled with the Spirit and are convinced that Jesus must increase and we must decrease, and yet even at the end of his life while in prison, John had doubts. You remember in Matthew 11, John sent his disciples to ask Jesus if indeed he is the Messiah. And John, who preached that Jesus had that winnowing fork, you remember, to judge unrepentant sinners, and he obediently followed suit, he being John the Baptist, in preaching to Herod, he's now his prisoner. What gives? So John the Baptist after faithfully preaching, is now saying, where are you, Messiah? Are you really who you say you are? There are times when we're going through the darkest of valleys where there seems to be no relief in sight. We doubt God. And if we're honest, we ask this question, is this Christianity thing real? Is this gospel true? Or again, if we're honest, we're mad at God. Church, it's good to be honest with God. It's good to be mad at God. Not all the time. (laughs) But we can be honest with God. He can take it. But there are times when we're mad at God because if this sovereignty thing is real and he is compassionate, then why am I suffering the way that I am? Some have said, point blank, 
I have a hard time believing that God is good. They were being honest. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This promise of God for endurance, this promise of encouragement of the scriptures that is our hope, church, it's found in Jesus. It's found in Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in him. All of them. All of them. The justice and the judgment hoped for by John and us, especially those of us who are victims, our desire for recognition and acceptance and belonging, the desire for peace and rest for our souls, shame and an anxious conscience made clean, assurance and safety made secure. Punishment for and forgiveness of the very sins that we are guilty of are laid there on the body of Jesus. All this took place and was achieved at the cross and was secured by his resurrection. Now while a beheading did not occur, Christ himself was cut off in our place. He was separated from his holy father because he became guilty of the very sin. In fact, he became the very sin that we are guilty of. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake, church, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the most uneven exchange ever. And that's the gospel. That is grace. That's the immeasurable grace that a holy God lavished upon us in sacrificing his son, punishing him instead of us. You see, we like Herod. We're, like, we're so like Herod. I hate hearing that. I, I want to look good. I'll be honest with you. But we're like Herod because we pretend to be king and we desire and are desperate to hold on to our little kingdom, our pitiful little kingdom. But the one true king, the king of kings, he empties himself. He empties himself for us. This is who Jesus is. Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 6. <clears throat> Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This is an unspeakable yet true condescension. Being born in the likeness of men, he suffered with and he suffered for us. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. 
justice. Sin and sinners rightly being punished was served. How? Jesus, the lawgiver, who was the perfect law keeper, was made subject to the law's demands for our sake. He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, he is the true prophet, priest, king, gave everything to become our savior. So now that you've heard the fame of Jesus, who do you say that he is? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. His kingdom is inaugurated through his death and resurrection, and he wants you to be a part of it. He wants you to be his. He loves you. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, you have said in your words so clearly and so beautifully that you have so loved the world, the entire world, that you gave your only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, your grace is real. Your grace is true. Your grace saves and your grace sustains. And Lord, we are saved by grace through faith not any pitiful effort on our part, but through the finished and complete and perfect work of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to believe even more and help those who don't yet know you but are hearing your voice and are being called by you. Help them to receive by faith that you are good, you are God, you are king, and you are Lord. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.